Hi, and welcome to Better Than New, the podcast to help you find a cool used car, truck, or SUV at a price you'll love. I'm your host, Gary Crenshaw, and when it comes to keeping my used cars in good working order through regular maintenance, Murphy's Law always seems to stop by for a visit to spoil the party. But I never know what form Murphy's Law is going to take. Sometimes it comes in the form of some mundane part that's seized in place, or maybe it just breaks. Or maybe I get everything disassembled, only to find out that the replacement parts I need are not in stock and have to be back-ordered from some small village in Latvia. Now, routine maintenance should be just that, routine. But when it comes to Murphy's Law, anything that could go wrong will go wrong to prevent you from finishing your maintenance project in a timely fashion. In this week's episode about my recent run-in with the law, Murphy's Law that is, is a gentle reminder that owning and maintaining a used car, whether it's three years old or 30, requires patience if you plan to do a lot of the maintenance yourself. So what happened to me? Well, I'll tell you about my very lame, very bad week in just a moment. So hop in, buckle up, and let's go for a drive. As someone who drives used cars exclusively, I like to stay ahead of problems. And at any given time, I know where our cars are in terms of things like oil changes, brake pad changes, tire pressure, tire wear, coolant changes, etc. But with used cars, no matter how much you plan, no matter how much you try to stay on top of any potential issues, sometimes things just go wrong. It's inevitable. Now, a lot of that can be alleviated by doing regular maintenance, like consistent oil changes, checking the air in your tires, checking the brake fluid levels, the coolant level, etc. But even if you do an ideal job keeping track of those things, eventually you'll have to do the physical work of replacing the brake pads, replacing a serpentine belt, or maybe a water pump. That's just part of the bargain. Now, when I have a major maintenance project to do on one of our cars especially on a car I share with my wife, she will always ask me, how long will this take? And my answer is always the same. I say, how long will it take to catch a fish? And she's like, what? Why do you always say that? Then I have to explain to her that car repair is sometimes straightforward, where I can pretty much say, oh, it'll take an hour to change the oil, or it'll take three hours to swap out brake pads. To make sure things go according to plan and to stay on schedule for any maintenance project, you need to be able to control the variables. And the more variables you can control, the more accurate you can plan on your timing. You need to do things like pre-order your parts. You need to have the right tools. You need to know the torque specs for any bolts or nuts that require specific torque settings. You need to have a torque wrench to tighten the nuts and bolts to those settings. You need to have all the fluids necessary, and you need to know the correct procedure for removing and replacing the parts in question. However, more often than not, something else comes up in the process of fixing a car that you didn't, and frankly, couldn't even account for. Call it the unexpected variable, or variables. Okay, so what does that have to do with my current car maintenance issue? Well, they say that misery loves company. You've probably heard that expression. So I guess it makes sense that our Audi wagon, which kept developing small oil leaks here and there over time, finally developed enough of them that I was forced to declare August as National Leak Elimination Month. 
I have oil weeping out of the valve cover gaskets, the valley pan gasket, the oil filter housing gasket, and the oil cooler gaskets down underneath the engine. Now, having a leak or two is no surprise on a used car, and leaks like these are actually pretty common, especially on a 15-year-old car that's been through thousands of heat cycles. I mean, rubber gaskets that are sandwiched between metal eventually wear out and start to leak. It's just going to happen, given enough time and mileage. So I put the Audi up on my quick jack lift, I removed the front wheels, and proceeded to put the car into what Audi calls service position. Now, the term service position actually involves removing the front bumper cover, unhooking some electrical connections, unbolting and unclipping a few more things, and then the whole front end pulls out and forward like a drawer to give you better access to the front of the engine. It's really kind of ingenious, and it's something anyone with simple tools can do. Anyway, no sooner had I placed the Audi in service position when my friend Murphy's Law paid me a visit, in the form of our temporary vehicle dying while my wife was driving it to the grocery store. Now, this temporary car is a 1998 Toyota Camry. It's a hand-me-down that a family friend recently gave to our oldest son. Now, I've driven it several times with no issue, but my wife doesn't like driving it and is kind of vocal about that. So knowing that inanimate things really do have feelings, I mean, they kind of do. The Camry apparently doesn't like my wife either and decided to stop running while she was waiting at a stoplight. Now, luckily, some good Samaritans jumped out of their car behind her and pushed her to a safe parking spot on a side street near the store that she was going to. After which, she got on the phone, called me, and scolded me for not having fixed the Audi yet which, I'll remind you, I had just begun working on. Anyway, long story short, she walked the last hundred yards to the store and asked me to drive down in the Miata, a car she does like but won't drive, to check out the Camry and then pick her up after she was done shopping. Okay, that all makes sense to me. That's fine. And fortunately, our trusty Miata always runs, and now it's our only functioning car at the moment. Unfortunately, the Miata has a manual transmission, and my wife refuses to drive a manual transmission car, in spite of the fact that she used to drive our former 1965 Mustang GT with a manual transmission, our Porsche 914 with a manual transmission, and our 1980 RX-7, which was actually her daily driver, and it had a, you guessed it, manual transmission. If she'd just driven the Miata, the Camry wouldn't have died at the stoplight making it necessary for me to load up my tools to come and check out the Camry. Now, when I got to the Camry, I got in, and it started right up and ran fine. Because, of course it did. <laughs> of course, it's going to run just fine when I get there. So, <laughs> I moved it to a better parking spot in the shade and proceeded to run a scan using the Onboard Diagnostic 2 scanner that I brought with me. Now, just as a side note here, go to episode 42 and listen to it. It's like a 10-minute episode, 15-minute episode. Basically, I tell you why you need one of these scanners. And if you don't have one, you do need one. Any car sold in the U.S. from 1996 onward has a port for one of these scanners. And you just plug it in. If you have a check engine light, it'll tell you what's wrong with the car. So save yourself some money. Pick up a scanner. They're cheap. They're like 25 bucks if you buy it online. So just pick one up. Anyway, back to the Camry. It did have a check engine light on but there were no codes when I checked it with the scanner. So I'm not exactly sure what's up with that, but I did find that after the car warmed up on the fast idle circuit, and the fast idle circuit is 
when you first start a car in the morning and it's cold, right? And the RPMs go up higher than normal. And then over time, it kind of slowly comes back down until it's at its normal idle. When it's in that raised idle position, that's the fast idle. And it lasts anywhere from five to 10 minutes, depends on the car. Anyway, in the case of the Camry, it worked fine in the fast idle position. But once the car warmed up to be in the normal idle mode, the engine wouldn't stay running unless you blip the throttle with your foot. So, after figuring out that the Camry only is drivable when it's cold, I went to pick up my wife, I drove her home from the store, and I said, let's wait a couple of hours before we pick up the Camry. Now, because I couldn't find a neighbor to help me, and also because my wife won't drive a manual, she's again the designated Camry driver for the drive home. Now, in preparation for the drive, she asked me, how long will the car run okay? And I said, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes, maybe. And her reply was, it takes 15 minutes to get home. And I said, well, your last five minutes of driving is going to suck. Or you can drive the Miata. Well, she opted for the suck option because she doesn't want to drive a manual. And after some minor panic moments, she made it back to our driveway with the Camry just fine. Okay, so my new problem is now sitting in the driveway. And since I smelled gasoline walking by the Camry after my wife got back, I thought, you know, I better find out where that smell's coming from. Or we could have a bonfire. And it turns out there was actually a gas leak under the Camry in the back. You could see this little puddle of gas. Now, this meant at least two things. Number one, there's a gas leak. Number two, this free car for our son isn't really going to be free. Anyway, upon closer inspection from the ground with a flashlight, I saw that the leak was from a vent hose on what appears to be the charcoal canister, or what's known as the vapor canister, which is a part of the emission system that's supposed to prevent gas vapors from venting to the atmosphere. Now, the vapor canister device is conveniently tucked up in an area that's really hard to access right behind the gas tank. So I really couldn't take it apart without putting it on a lift. And that's the same lift the Audi's sitting on right now. So instead, I used a little deductive reasoning, which led me to believe that the leak was likely due to a faulty vapor check valve in the gas tank. I parked the Camry on level ground to stop the leak, which worked. So that check valve is the likely cause of the leak, but I still don't know what that impacts in terms of the idle drivability issue. So further research and diagnosis required. That said, the Camry is parked and left for now. So I guess it's back to the Audi, right? Ready to work on that again. Well, Murphy's Law isn't finished with me yet. So not long after the Camry decided to go on a driver's strike, our older son, who will be receiving the Camry as his, quote, free car, unquote, dropped by with his current car, a 1992 Honda Accord, asking me if I could take it for a drive to figure out what the noises were that he kept hearing. Now, being asked to diagnose noises is never a good sign when it comes to used cars, especially a 30-year-old used car. But being a good dad, I took my son's car for a drive. And it wasn't long before I was hearing some clunking and clanging sounds. Now, he went with me, and I told him, it sounds like something's loose in the trunk. So I pulled over, I opened the trunk, and hey, there it was, a scissor jack you know, a jack for the car that comes with the car, and a moving dolly sliding around in the trunk. And that, along with every door pocket filled with hard plastic and metal junk, it was all clanging around and making the car sound like it was falling apart. 
I said, how do you expect me to diagnose any problems with this junk in here? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, okay. Well, that said, I did hear one or two sounds that I think might be suspension related. So further investigation would be required. I also noticed that the car seemed kind of sluggish when turning. And I also noticed that the brake light was flickering when I was going around a steady state corner. So back to the garage for further diagnosis, right? Now, the brake light flickering was actually due to the brake fluid reservoir being down to its minimum level. So when you go around a corner and your brake fluid is low, the fluid kind of flows up to the side and the low fluid light comes on. It'll come on solid if it's low enough or it will kind of flicker if it's right on the edge. And that's where his was. And the sluggish driving feel that I was feeling on the car, that was actually due to low tire pressure in the front. So I adjusted the pressure and got that back to normal. I also added new brake fluid to bring it up to the maximum level. And I asked him, I said, hey, when was the last time you checked the oil? And then my son said to me, well, I think it's been a while. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? Smart kid. Turns out he was right because it was down one and a half quarts. Oh, God. So I asked him kind of dryly. I said, are you trying to kill the car? And he said, well, I've been busy. So I said, I hope you're busy working a second job to pay for the pending engine rebuild. And he kind of looks at me and said, well, no. Well, you're going to have to. I mean, I told him when he first got the car, I said, you have to check the oil every time you fill up. It's an old car, so you'll need to add some oil once in a while. Not a big deal, but when it's down over a quart, it is a big deal. So, you know, take better care of your stuff and it'll keep working. Okay, Dad. (sighs) Anyway... The real joy of this check of his car began when I put the oil dipstick back into its slot. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, what is this thing? There's this small black strand of something hanging near the oil cap. And upon inspection, it was clear. I was holding a small piece of a drive belt for the alternator and the AC compressor. Now, my son asked, is that bad? I said, well, yeah, if you want your car to keep running and blowing cold air out of the vents on a hot day. And he just looked at me and said, oh. And I said, okay, fine. I'm going to go order some parts. Now, when I got inside, my wife asked me what's wrong with the Accord. And I said, it's going to need new drive belts for the alternator and power steering pump. Then she said, well, how long is that going to take? So I cocked my head sideways, made a face and kind of looked at her. And then she goes, oh, yeah, I know. How long will it take to catch a fish? (laughs) And I said, I don't know. All right. So replacing drive belts should be typically a straightforward job, but instead of having a single serpentine belt with a spring-loaded tensioner like many newer cars, the 1992 Honda Accord has two separate belts, one for the alternator and AC compressor, and one for the power steering pump, along with manual adjusters and tension bolts that you have to tighten and loosen to make the adjustment. Oh, and some of these bolts are really hard to reach without a crow's foot wrench. This is a small wrench that looks like a crow's foot, literally, and I needed one that was a 12 millimeter. So I went to my crow's foot wrench set only to discover that my set jumps from 11 millimeters to 13 millimeters. There is no 12 millimeter. (laughs) I just want to cry, right? It's like, I don't know, five o'clock at night. I'm just like, come on, I got better things to do. So knowing Murphy's Law very well, I shouldn't be surprised by this. But 12 millimeter is a really common size on many Japanese and European cars. So this was actually a bit surprising. 
What was also surprising was the lack of a single 12mm crow's foot wrench available locally the day I needed one. Now, I did find one semi-locally for like $13, or I could get one for half that if I wanted to wait a couple of days to get it from Amazon, but I really wanted the car out of the garage, so I decided to bite the bullet and buy another complete set from the local Napa Auto Parts. Now, the set turned out to be about $20 with a discount coupon. Yes, I'm cheap. I use coupons. And because I just couldn't spend $13 for one tiny tool when a whole set was only 20 Plus, I only had to drive two miles to pick up the set, as opposed to like 20 miles to get the single tool. Yeah, I'm getting the set. Anyway, after a few hours of removing parts to reach the clamp bolts and adjusters, then removing the old bolts, and finally removing the belly pan on the car to more easily access the belt pulley from underneath so I could install the new belts, I had them back on and adjusted properly. And I got the car buttoned up, took it out for a test drive, and guess what? Success. Everything worked. (laughs) Kind of a surprise, right? Anyway, I think it was like 1 o'clock in the morning when I wrapped up everything. And since I was wide awake, I didn't fall asleep till like 3 a.m., but at least I was done with that part. Now, keep in mind that I still have the Audi in service position and the projects, of which there are at least four or five to do on that car, still waiting to be done. And I know there will be some Murphy's Law issue or two or maybe more that explode across my garage floor when I finally get the Audi apart. But hey, that's part of the deal when it comes to DIY maintenance. When you do it yourself, you have to be prepared for the unexpected, and you have to be prepared for your project taking longer than it normally would. Now, many times a maintenance project can work out and go smoothly, but in my experience, there's never a perfect project. Even if you do everything by the book, you might still waste 30 minutes trying to find that spring that shot across the garage floor or a screw that you drop down into the engine bay and hopefully you have one of those long-reach retractable magnet thingies. You know, all that stuff's just part of the deal. But that said, I probably saved my son hmm, maybe three to five days of time because many mechanics are backed up a week or more to do a simple project like changing an accessory belt. And I probably saved him about $200 in cash on that belt replacement. Also, I know I'll be saving myself at least $3,000. Yes, that's three followed by three zeros. In labor, doing my own work on the Audi. And I have added up the expected work hours, and that's really what it is. Also, for now, the Toyota Camry repair is going to remain mystery meat. But I'm sure I'll save myself at least an hour or two of labor doing whatever work that car eventually needs once I figure it out. I don't think it's going to be anything big, but now that I've said that, I've just jinxed myself, and I probably need an engine rebuild. Oh, great. Murphy's Law. So, here's the big question. Is it worth it? Is it worth doing your own work? Do I love spending this much time wrenching on my cars? Well, that second question, the answer is no. I'd rather be doing something else, like driving my cars. But I do like to get car issues resolved quickly. And like I said, many mechanics are backed up a week or two. So simple repair jobs or maintenance can really take a long time if you go to a shop. But you can save yourself a ton of time if you do the work yourself. And don't forget the money you'll save. Hourly mechanic rates where I live are like $150 to $180 per hour. So 
even simple things become really, really expensive very quickly. So back to the question, is it worth it? Well, that question, the answer is yes, absolutely. Now, if you're not sure if you can do the work yourself, start by checking out some YouTube videos on the subject that you plan to tackle. If you've got a 2015 Honda Pilot and you need to replace the brake pads, just search for that. Replace brake pads on 2015 Honda Pilot. There's probably dozens of videos on the subject. Some that'll be bad, some just okay, and some that are great. And you'll start to notice and figure out the great ones right away, and you'll stick with those. You'll keep going back to those people who post that kind of content. And after spending a little time checking out those videos, you might find the work to be mm, relatively simple, or at least something you think, I could do that. And with a repair, like a brake job, costing $300 to $500 per axle, depending on the car and where you live, you might want to try doing it yourself. You're going to save yourself hundreds of dollars. Now, as long as you have the tools, the parts, a spare car, or maybe a friend who can give you a ride if you need one while your other car is being repaired, I'd say that you can do this. And if you're fortunate enough to have a spare car, you can spread the work out a bit and do it on nights and weekends when you have some extra time. But just don't take too long, because your partner might keep asking if you've caught that fish yet. Remember, how long will it take to do this project? I don't know. How long will it take to catch a fish? Who knows? And with that, thanks for listening to this episode of Better Than New. And if you like what you've heard, please like and subscribe to this podcast so I can keep bringing you reviews of cool used cars, trucks, and SUVs available at a price you'll love. Also, be sure to join me next week for another used car review. And until then, I'm Gary Crenshaw. This is Better Than New. And I'm really glad you came along for the ride.